This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is the Wharton Sports Business Show on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. This is George Perry, and we just got off the phone with Mike Jones of USA Today talking about the NFL. Um, But we are now going to switch gears and go to the other football, uh, soccer. And on the line today, we have uh, Mike Wintergrad, who is a candidate for president of the United States Soccer Federation. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the departure of Sunil uh, Gadi, and um, and now we've got several candidates. Sunil Gulati, sorry, <laughs> and we've got several candidates, many candidates actually, uh, eight or nine, I think, is the number that I've seen. Um, but but one of those candidates who I think has been labeled the outsider. Um, is Michael Wintergrad and Michael, if you could, first of all, welcome to the show. We appreciate you coming on with us today. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me. Um, if you could a little bit, uh, because you're in some respects an outsider, uh, yep. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners may, may not uh, be familiar with who you are, and, and perhaps you could start with just giving us uh, your background and, and who you, um, um, for those that are not familiar with you. Sure. So, you know, I, I actually have a, a good uh, background both on the soccer side and the business side. Um, and I think it's one of the unique qualities amongst the candidates. Uh, in terms of being an outsider, I think that's because most of the other candidates, if not all of them, have had some sort of inside job with the Federation or one of the factions, you know, sort of that have a very heavy interest in, in the Federation. Uh, I, I played college soccer in Division One at Lafayette College for four years. I played professionally in Israel for three years after that. I came back. I coached for a year at the University of Richmond. I then uh, co-started up a what at the time was a second-division professional team on Staten Island called the Staten Island Vipers. Uh, I, signed, um, I had signed a contract when I got back to the States after coaching at Richmond and, and with, with the Rochester Rhinos, and they said, hey, you should go play indoors at the Buffalo Blizzard in the meantime, and I blew out my knee on the first day. Decided I wanted to go to law school and went to law school probably uh, maybe 100 feet from where you're broadcasting right now at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, since then, I have uh, been a corporate lawyer in New York City, represented a lot of really big companies, Microsoft, Samsung, Bain Capital, um, FedEx Supply. The sort of list goes on in, in a lot of their really high stakes uh, cases and negotiations. Um, so that's sort of my background. And uh, I've been for about 14 years. I've also been an adjunct professor of law at, at Fordham Law School, been active in my community, have coached um, my kids uh, for several years when they were younger. I've been on the board of my local soccer organization since 2009, uh, and I've you know stayed very active in the community and, and soccer for, for all these years. So certainly, it sounds like you have some great experience, particularly uh, graduating uh, from UPenn Law School. That's right. Um, but you know, this is a position that uh, I mean, U.S. Soccer. There, there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot. Yep. There's the FIFA scandal. There's uh, the fact that the team didn't make it into the into the World Cup, didn't qualify for the World Cup this year. Um, plenty of other sports that the that they have to compete against. What made you put your hat in the ring to be president of this? Sounds like you got a pretty good life going on without uh, adding this to your to your agenda. 
Yeah, you know, this is something that had been brewing for a while. And, and, and the truth is, I really started thinking about it when I was coaching my kids. Um, my kids, I coached them in their town travel team and, and in rec and then the town travel. And when I got to the town travel uh, sort of level, you know, I've been in soccer a fair amount of time and, and you know, I, I have a decent head on my shoulders. And figuring out the soccer landscape at the youth level was, was like a Herculean task. Everything, it was just a conglomerate of competing leagues and there was no clear path as to what this team meant, what that league meant, why there were different rules here, there were different passes there. And it was very confusing. And what, you, what I began to realize is that it wasn't probably the most efficient way for U.S. soccer, at least, to, to, to benefit from this. And that led to looking into U.S. soccer. And, and you know, look, on, on, you, know, you mentioned Sunil Gulati before, and Sunil Gulati has been, you know, had been in, in, in the office for about 12 years. And over the course of those 12 years, U.S. soccer has grown considerably on the financial side. If you even go back further than that, it is it is a different a whole different industry than it is you know than it was now than it was when I was growing up. I mean we've got a thriving league with that that's strong and growing where franchises are going for 150 million or 200 million dollars. It, it is a you've got you know huge contracts in, in television and sponsorships. So it's really progressed a lot on that on that you know financial side. But when you start looking into it, all the focus on the finances sort of we're done a little bit at the expense of the youth levels and player development and some of the soccer elements. And so the more I sort of looked into it, the more I said, we need to fix this. We need to fix this. Uh, and then it you know, turned out that Sunil Gulati's term was coming up in February. The U.S., you know, so one or two people had announced that they were going to finally run against him. He, nobody had run against him previously um, in his reelection campaigns. And then the U.S. soccer team didn't qualify for the World Cup. And that really didn't make much of it. I was very disappointed as a fan, but that really wasn't sort of a, a, a watermark moment in any respect, because I think the problems that led to that, like I had said, were brewing for several years. But it certainly opened up the possibility and, and, and you know, and opened up the door for candidates to really meaningfully step in. And I, I sort of had looked at the slate and I said, you know, I think I have a lot of things that some of these folks just don't have to offer. I think I should throw my hat in the ring. And so what is the process? How do you go about throwing your hat in the ring and then, um, you know, getting elected? So, you know, it's, 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 a fu- it's funny that you ask that because one of the things that needs to change is the process. One of the things I've said a lot, and you guys, you know, looking at this, the, you know, the business of sports know well, is when you have a sport just like any other business that grows quickly – what, what's happened in U.S. soccer is, is its growth has, outpa- has outpaced its governance. And so you have a process in place that is a little bit vague, a little bit unclear, and doesn't really account for a lot of different scenarios that a more uh, developed company would account for in its processes. So the process was you need to secure – there was a process implemented just months ago, and the new process for this election was the first hurdle that folks had to get into, had to get over, was three nominations. Nominations could only come from uh, from organization members of U.S. Soccer, which is a limited number, and each of those organizations could only give one nomination. That left that was real. Those were really the rules. It left a lot of questions unanswered. Uh, I managed to get over that hurdle I, with with some room to spare, and now the, we go into the election, and the election is basically 
um, the voters are basically divided into four blocks. You have about 25% of the vote comes from the professional council, which is predominantly MLS. Uh, you have 25, a little under 25% from the athlete council, which are about 20 men and women who previously or currently play on our national team. You get about 25% from the youth state association, so you know the Pennsylvania Eastern Pennsylvania Youth State Association, <clears throat> and each each state usually has a youth uh, association, and then you have the other 25% from the state adult associations, and each of those associations has a number of delegates, and it's, the delegates have a weighted, you know, are weighted, and and that's what happens, and ultimately you need 50% plus one. To win, so you go round one, and if nobody achieves the fifty percent plus one, you keep going until somebody does. Interesting. So you you mentioned that you you have things to offer that others do not, um, and there's certainly some some candidates, uh, people that have been in the business, Carlos Cordero, mm-hmm. yep. uh, famous soccer players, Eric Winalda, uh, yep. Kathy Carter with uh, MLS. What are some of the, the the things that you have to offer that they don't? So I think I think I have more of a complete package than anybody in terms of experience and 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 you know sort of meaningful experience and knowledge. I also and then and and the second thing is I want to talk about just sort of general skill set, which I think is is important here. But when you look at, for example, Eric Winalda, who you know I, I've met, I, I consider him a friend. I think Eric is great. I think he's passionate. I think he is clearly uh, you know the most accomplished soccer player of the group. He's, he's, he's a very accomplished coach, knows soccer in and out, and has been you know impressive in what he said, and is passionate and with his ideas. I think you know, I have the soccer side. I don't have it at that level of playing, but I certainly played Division One college soccer. I played professionally. I, I you know I, I I understand the game. I coached it at the collegiate level. I started up a pro team, so I've got the sort of you know a really strong level of soccer, not as, not like Eric and, 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 and maybe not even like Paul Caligiri or, or even Kyle Martino. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of soccer playing experience, but in terms of soccer knowledge, I certainly have it. Uh, I think some of the other candidates, I know Kathy Carter sort of played in college um, and some of the, and Carlos Cordero, on the other hand, you mentioned him has said publicly that he knows nothing about soccer. Um, and so I have that soccer side, I think when you look at Carlos, who is an investment banker at Goldman Sachs and has been the, you know, sort of the, on the inside of U.S. soccer with with Sunil Gulati, I've also got the business side. You know, so some of the soccer guys don't really have the business side. I, for the last 17 years, have been at you know one of the you know top law firms in the country. You know, dealing with very large clients, with you know advising CEOs on strategy. And, and negotiating settlements and, and getting in front of judges and trying to persuade them, uh, you know, as to a, you know, the right path forward. And so I think in terms of the qualifications that I have, you know, I don't think there is another candidate with as deep qualifications, both on the soccer side and all, in, in all areas, youth, collegiate, professional, playing, coaching, and managing. And with the business side in negotiations and, and, you know, sort of day-to-day business at a very, very high level, dealing with companies like the U.S., you know, like U.S. Soccer, which is now a $125 million a year company, uh, organization, dealing with that on a day-to-day basis at the level I've been doing, I don't think there's anybody else like that. You know, you've got a couple who have played at a higher level. You've got some who have been running a soccer business for a long time. I don't think you have anybody that has 
the that can cross you know sides like I can and can really bridge all of the sides. And in terms of a skill set, you know, one of the things you know that 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 has made me a successful you know that's made me successful in in my job is the ability to bring people together. And that's one of the most important things that we're going to need right now in soccer. Because, as you know, you guys know, dealing in, in business all the time, a lot of negotiations sort of deal with this, with this intangible ability to just earn trust and, and make people that believe that things that are common path forward is in their best interest. It's not an easy thing to do. If it were, I'd be out of a job. But it's something that I've done for a very long time, and I think it's, it's really desperately needed in terms of bringing together the disparate factions in U.S. soccer and getting everybody rowing in the same direction. So you're starting to convince me. Unfortunately, I don't have a vote, but maybe there's some listeners out there that do. Um, Steve Goff reported that of the Washington Post reported that the 26 World Cup bid is not a sure thing right. uh, due to falling popularity of the U.S. on a worldwide scale and, and potentially within FIFA, given that uh, you know the U.S. had a large uh, role in, in kind of... Uh, Pushing, pushing to 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 follow up on all the scandals that were taking place. How important is is the U.S. How important is it to U.S. soccer for the U.S. to win the bid in twenty six? In your opinion, you know, I, I I'm a big believer that no matter what happens, we can deal with it. Um, but you know, that said, we need that World Cup. It is. It would be a. It would be uh, a a terrible. Um, turn of events if we didn't get it. It is important for the prestige of the sport in this country, for the popularity of the sport in this country, to get people interested. Financially, it's, it's a massive boon to U.S. soccer and, and, and you know, soccer in this country. So I think it's absolutely critical that we get it. And, and we've done a good job thus far. You know, Sunil Gulati is on that bid committee. Uh, you know, he, is, he has done a very good job with it. I, I there's no need to upset the apple cart, but it is critical for us to get that. And it will be absolutely one of the top priorities of the next U.S. soccer president, and hopefully that'll be me, to make sure that we do everything within our power to, to get that World Cup. You're listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM 111. We are speaking with uh, Michael Winograd, who is a candidate for president of the United States Soccer Federation Michael, you mentioned uh, youth being a challenge and the whole youth soccer organization. What are what are a couple other challenges that you're going to hit? You think you'll hit from day one when you're elected president? Yeah, I think I think there are there are several steps that need to be taken in terms of of improving U.S. soccer. So the U.S. soccer and, and dealing with the fracturing is one. The other is, and this is a little bit related, but we need a we need to define clearly the various paths in U.S. soccer. If you, if you are an elite player, you know, less than the 1% that, has, you know, that believes that you, know, you can get on the national team, play professionally, we need to define the path clearly for him or her to make sure that he or, her, that he or she can, can, you know, knows the path to follow. And the same is true at the youth level, not just getting people, not just creating a structure on a state-by-state basis that's integrated and, and efficient and makes sense, but, you know, and, and keeping in mind that private businesses are entitled to compete, but we need to do it in a system that makes sense for the kids and, and, and is clearly defined. So clearly defining the structure and clearly defining the various paths is going to be important. The other key thing is 
we're going to need to reduce the cost barriers for players and coaches. And that's a, it's a long conversation, but when you think about the, you know, nowadays if you have kids and that, and you, and your, you know, daughter decides that she wants to play on a, on one of the, you know, private clubs and one of the private clubs that's, you know, you don't know if she, you know, she doesn't know if she's going to play on the national team, but Hey, you know, as a parent, you say, I want to give her every opportunity and she should see where this takes her. It's a great sport. She loves it. It's $3,500 usually just to sign up for the team. And then you've got hotels and travel on top of that. We need to reduce those costs. And I've got five different ways to do it. I, don't, I think p- people recognize that's an issue. I don't think people ever quite understand how you get the money to do it. But I've got ideas in, in how to do that. And the same is true on the coaching side. One of the keys is getting kids in front of good coaches at the youngest age possible. And that means – that when someone graduates from a Division One college or any other college and is a great soccer player and she's pursuing a path in business, but she decides, hey, I want to volunteer my time to coach and train some young kids, it can't be that she's got to spend $1,500 to get the basic coaching license plus hotels and all this other stuff as a new college grad. We need to reduce those costs. And I'll tell you really quickly, you know, there's a huge surplus that could be used towards that for, at U.S. soccer. There's grant money that we can make sure is not left on the table. We need to invest in people to make sure that we're not leaving money on the table. There are charitable foundations like U.S. Soccer Foundation that are going into cities and getting money that's earmarked for infrastructure, municipal money, and also raising money you know, from private industries. There is going to private industries. I mean, we represent here at Ropes & Gray, Bain Capital, TPG, some of the biggest private equity firms in the world, speaking their language and see if we can get investments from them. And the fifth avenue is what's called um, – uh, basically solidarity payments, which are payments if you as a club develop a player who eventually signs a professional contract for a lot of money, that club should get a payment from that professional organization given all the, you know, the resources you put into developing that player. And that not only gives teams a chunk of money in terms of lo- to help lower costs, but for all the teams that don't actually get the chunk of money in a solidarity payment, it creates an upfront incentive to go to local businesses and local business folks, you know, sources of funding that you, know, you and I won't, won't have access to at the higher levels, to go into the local business and say, hey, give us some money to make it you – know, we have a vision here. We're going to do it the right way. Give us some money so we can get kids who can't afford to play for us on our team because, by the way, it's the right thing to do. But if we do it right, you're actually going to get your money back. And so those, that, those are the kind of – those are the hurdles that we'll face. You know, the other thing – the, the last thing I've spoken about, which is I don't consider a hurdle or a challenge because I just think it's just going to get done very easily. I would – I just – I have – nobody's been able to articulate a, a reasonable obstacle to creating equality for our women's programs. The fact that there is an equality for our women's programs with, you know, as, as compared to the men's programs in this country in 2017 is mind-boggling to me. But if the men's national team is flying first class, the women are going to fly first class. The men are staying at nicer hotels, the women will stay at nicer hotels. The men don't have to play on you know, substandard fields, the women won't have to either. So, and I don't think anybody should. So that, will get, I, that is a top priority, but I don't consider that to be a, a challenge because it'll get done. And I just cannot imagine, and I, when I say it'll get done, Everything will get done, but that'll get done very quickly. And I don't even see a roadblock to it because nobody's been able to actually explain to me why it hasn't happened already. 
And I, and I used to work at the Washington Freedom uh, women's professional soccer team, so I know that there are a number of, of women there that would really appreciate uh, that stance, and they are, they are some of the best uh, soccer players in the world. Uh, yep. You mentioned private money. I'm a sponsorship guy. Um, you know, last question here as we get towards the end. Um, you know, how important are those sponsors, and, and what's your plan to kind of get them on board with soccer? You know, sponsorship is really critical. And one of the things that I'd want to make sure U.S. soccer is doing is collaborating as much as possible in terms of sponsorships. And so if you look at, for example, and I could talk about how bringing new money in is also important, but if you just look at some of the sponsorships they have, like apparel sponsorships, other sponsorships, you have a league like MLS. You have leagues like the NASL and and USL. They're all critical. They all have gone out and, and arranged sponsorship deals with apparel. U.S. soccer has gone out and done its sponsorship deal with Nike. I think we need to explore. If we do a joint sponsorship deal, will the sum of all those individual sponsorships be greater than its individual parts, right? Because will a single brand, a, a single sponsor pay a lot more to have everybody under its umbrella? Because if it is, and we're, we're, we're just, we, we need to explore that option, so we're not leaving money on the table. So those are the kind of collaborative things I think we need to look into. Bringing new money in is critical. And, and you know, a lot of people will say that on the campaign trail. And when you talk about qualifications, it's easy to say, yeah, we need more money. The next question is, well, how do you do it? And, and most of those folks just haven't been in a position where they've had to, gone out, to, to go out and, and raise money and deal with the companies who can actually provide it. Because it's a lot of work. You need to be prepared. You need to articulate a really persuasive reason that it's in their best interest because they've got fiduciary duties to their business. Why? This and is and the Michael, right thing I, I hate to interrupt, but sure. we, we are up against it here at the end of the show. Um, I, I absolutely understand sure. where you're coming from because that's what I do every day is sell yep. sponsorships here for Penn. We really appreciate you coming on uh, the show, and we wish you best of luck in, in your upcoming election. Uh, this has been – you've been listening to the Wharton Sports Business Show on Sirius XM 111. This is George Perry wishing all of you a happy holidays and until next week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.